0: Well, it's great to be with you guys this morning. Um, last week, Pastor Joshua kicked off our um, our journey through the book of Luke, and uh, it, he he talked about chapters one and two when he started with the, the uh, he talked about the dedication uh, of Jesus in the temple, and then um, Jesus staying in the temple and arguing with the the uh, priests and having that wonderful interchange they had in Luke chapter two, um, and it was super cool to to read. By the way, oh, I need to first talk about these these paintings here. We're we're going to use these paintings. I love them from, from a, a 19th century artist named James Tissot, and uh, I have been using him for years for our Passion Week um, festivities. He he painted hundreds and hundreds of scenes of the life of Jesus and the intricate detail of the temple and of the different synagogues and the hillsides and the Jordan River and all these things are just beautiful and phenomenal. The, the Brooklyn Museum of Art has his entire collection and they've put them out to, uh, to be downloaded and things like that. So I encourage you to check that out. We're going to be using them. Um, one of the It's kind of funny because he's so detailed, but one of the details he consistently gets wrong is the skin color. <laughs> because Jesus wasn't, wasn't white, but we're going to give him a pass on that. He was uh, a 19th century in France. He probably had no idea um, and was just looking around, and uh, he might not have had any of that information at all. Um, I think the paintings are, are gorgeous. Um, so, uh, as Joshua said, he gets, uh, he Jesus as a boy was so bright that he's able to have these, incredible, like, debates with the smartest minds in the in, entire nation. Um, but he didn't tell his parents that he was staying while the entire caravan went back to, to Nazareth. And uh, and it says right after that passage that he had to grow in wisdom and knowledge and in favor with God and man. And if Jesus himself had to grow in wisdom and knowledge, so do we. Um, and, and, uh, and that especially includes... Understanding the scriptures. Um, Jesus sort of did, well, I mean, there's nothing written uh, about him in our Bibles for the next 18 years. So there's this hole in his life, um, and we don't know much about it. What we can do is fill in some uh, cultural gaps. Um, uh, A young man would follow in the footsteps of his father uh, and take on his father's trade. Joseph was a, a, a builder, Um, We we sort of assume carpentry, except back in the day, they worked mostly with stone. So it's maybe more likely that he worked with stone in building. Um, And and at some point, Joseph died, and Jesus probably would have taken up where he left off. but he was all that time obviously studying all kinds of scripture. He came out with an unbelievable amount of knowledge and memory of the scriptures. How many times is he quoting through, you know, throughout his ministry uh, and a deep understanding? So we know that he was at least doing those things. Uh, and that he was living uh, in Nazareth for most of that time. So um, at, at age 30, he finally emerges on the scene as an adult uh, in his public ministry. But he doesn't come on the scene by himself. He, he comes in with John the Baptist. And this is where uh, chapter 3 begins. Let's talk a little bit about John. Uh, many people, when they think of John the Baptist, they think uh, locusts and honey, because that was his favorite snack. Um, and so that, that vision, if that's all you see, you might think this was some fringe lunatic that, that everyone just thought was crazy. Um, actually, I mean, he, he, was, he was a bit crazy in, in that sense, but uh, he was not fringe. Um, he was actually very well known. You know how today we have internet famous Like, you got a video on Instagram or something. It's like, whoa! And it goes everywhere. You're you're internet famous. Here they had ancient famous. So he was ancient famous. (laughs) They knew who he was in in this region, and everybody wanted to come out to see him. Uh, All these people wanted to hear him. Just common folk, religious leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees, even though he's getting in their faces, Roman soldiers, Tax collectors, even Herod himself wanted to go hear this guy. And they would come out there, and he would preach about the the, uh, the the coming Messiah. He would preach about repentance and the need to have our sins washed away, and actually to turn away from our sins. So he would say, for example, to Roman soldiers, "Repent." stop harassing people. Stop beating them up. He would tell tax collectors, stop stealing from the people when you're doing your job. And, and, and be baptized and start. Of, so this is what he was doing and people were coming all over the place. Now he was so good at this and he was so highly regarded that people legitimately thought he might be the Messiah. They would ask him, you've got to be, right? You have to be the Messiah. Like, and he would say, no, it's not me. I am only preparing the way for that one who is to come. So, it happens. Jesus marches into the Jordan River one day while John is there baptizing people. And remember, John is, is actually his cousin. And he sees him. He says, there he is. There he is. And uh, um, Jesus comes and they have this, this great little interchange between them that's in some of the, the parallel passages. Um, and John baptizes Jesus of Nazareth. He gives him this endorsement. Behold the Lamb of God. He gives him this endorsement. Uh, and, and in the same way, Jesus comes out of the water a voice comes down from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. Like, all of that happens. Can you imagine how, the, you know, the, the chatter must have spread from that moment? Like, I saw John the Baptist. Was he great? Yeah. And some really weird stuff happened. Oh, and I think the Messiah is here, by the way. <laughs> like, whoa, word goes out. Like, Crazy. Um, having the endorsement of a rabbi, especially one as highly regarded as John, was already a really big deal, but then you have this sort of you know, supernatural thing take place that made it a much bigger deal. So now all these people who had been waiting and waiting for the Messiah, they're extra excited because here they think he is. So um, it would, you would think this would have been a perfect time for Jesus to step out and begin his ministry. But he actually doesn't. Instead, he goes to the wilderness. And this is where chapter we step into chapter 4. So, temptation in the wilderness. Jesus goes into the wilderness and the devil comes to him. Can we talk about the devil? Let's talk about the devil. There's a lot of reasons why people are... A little bit, to, you know, have this sort of tentative relationship with the Bible. There's uh, uh, reasons of misunderstanding, there, there's reasons of complication, there's reasons of, of, of culture, like what is going on there? And one of the things that has sometimes been a hurdle is talk of Satan. And it's, it's easy to understand why. First of all, in our culture, when people talk about the devil, the immediate image that comes to mind is somebody in red tights with a pitchfork poking people in the bum. Right? Or something from Dante's Inferno, which also probably gets back to the pitchfork and all that. So that's one of the reasons it's silly and it's cliche and it's, you know, other reasons. One of the things, unfortunate things that's happened is many times throughout history, people have looked on. Uh, maybe a person struggling maybe with a mental illness, maybe with schizophrenia, or maybe they had some disability uh, And th- they would look on that and they would say this person has a demon And it's not true at all So then they try to cast that thing out of it. I mean can you imagine the damage that can be done that way so um, that because of that misunderstanding and the lack of, of knowledge about what's really going on, people have, have shied away from any belief in the devil. And sometimes it's sort of like, look, I don't know about all this stuff in the Bible, but just give me this stuff about Jesus. There. I just want to follow Jesus. And they push the way. Show me the red letters. This where I want to go. So... Um, A problem with that, well, there's uh, several problems with that, but one of the problems is that Jesus, when you actually watch what he's doing and what he's saying, he is going to say things that are going to challenge you every bit as much. For example, Jesus fully believed in an actual devil. And here we have an interaction with Jesus and Satan. This is not an interaction that's metaphorical. It's not, well, he went in and thought about doing bad stuff, but in the end he decided not to. That's not what it's saying here. There's an actual uh, discussion that's taking place. So here we go. Um, he, 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 well, let's just read through these temptations. Um, I can see it better from back here. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. And you then will worship me. It will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, And said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Such a fascinating passage. People have preached sermons on each one of those, probably written books on each one of these. These passages are so thick and rich, there's so many different things you could talk about. Um, But for our purposes, since we're only preaching one sermon on every two chapters, we have to pick and choose a little bit here. So... Uh, let me tell you uh, what I think is, is going on. I think the devil is offering Jesus a chance to meet the expectations of the people he's called to. Here's the thing. We talk about this a lot at Compassion Week. The people here, as they're waiting for the Messiah, they have a specific image of what they think the Messiah should be. And I'll tell you, It's not a man walking around in a robe and teaching and telling parables and being kind and ultimately being killed and and coming back from the dead. There's nothing like that. You know what they see? David. They see King David. They see Moses. They see uh, a warrior king wonder boy. They see a man with a crown and dirty beard, and a sling, and a staff. They see Braveheart. (laughs) They see, it's like a 300 movie. You know, they see him come in, Pontius Pilate, I'm coming for you. You know, that's what they're thinking is going to happen. Caesar's next. Rally to me, the Messiah. That's what they're looking for. (laughs) He's going to come in and put a staff down. The Roman legions will be divided. (laughs) You see, Israel has had saviors in the past. That's what's happened. Moses stepped in to Pharaoh, the overlord, said, "Let my people go," and he gets them out of slavery in Egypt. They remember that story. is It's the primary narrative that they think about. Uh, And and David, oh, David, the shepherd boy, warrior king who made them a real nation for the first time, consolidating them, into one, and had a capital, the king, and he was awesome, and he was just, that's what they wanted. And as they talked about the Messiah, and as they read their scriptures, that is the image that dominated their minds. There, that is what the Messiah is going to be. He's going to be someone to come in, just like with Moses. He's going to throw off the weight of Rome, and he's going to make Israel this amazing, huge, big nation again. It was a religious fantasy. Much of Jesus' ministry is confronting religious fantasy. I'm carrying this cup around and not taking a drink. Excuse me for just a second. Talk amongst yourselves. Ah. So Satan, I believe here, is basically giving him the opportunity to, to fulfill those things. Here's what he's saying. Hey, you know what? You have this mission to be the Lord of all nations. Well, let's make this start in style. I'll give you all the nations. And you could really start this thing with some real pizzazz, Throwing yourself off the temple. I'll scoop you up. Bam! Yeah! You can really, that would be amazing. People would be like, you know, it'd be like a, you throw yourself down from the temple and it'd be like, Thor, you know, coming down, and it would be so cool. Everyone will follow you. You should totally, and he says, no. Even the stones to bread thing is like, here, let's take... People were all into magic back in the day and transforming things. And you have all these magicians trying to do these. So basically, let's get sucked in there. Yes, let's take... Let's take this, this physical hunger that you have and let's let's take bread. Go, Stones to bread. Yes, this will be so... Like, everything is external. Even the power. I'll give you all nations. wow. Well, Satan did have some authority in all the nations. He still does. That wasn't like an empty thing. And Jesus was coming to become king. But as M.T. Wright says, Jesus is indeed to become the world's true Lord. But the path to that status and the mode of when it arrives is humble service, not a devilish seeking after status and power. Jesus wasn't coming as evil can evil. <laughs> I don't know, like five of you even know who that is, apparently. I thought it was a little funny picture. Of Je- anyway, forget it. No, maybe not. <laughs> he didn't come to impress anyone. Now, I also think it's worth pointing out how Jesus dealt with spiritual attack and with temptation. Many times in charismatic environments, I think this is a fairly charismatic environment. Sometimes I think we overthink it a bit and uh, and and we try to really stir up a defense. Lord, get me straight to avoid this you know, and it's like and that doesn't a lot of times do any good because you're just playing with the idea, you know, <laughs> you know. And then you're trying through works to try to work your, you know to work yourself up to be powerful enough to do the right thing. And Jesus says, no, I know the truth. It is written. (laughs) He was able to stand up against the lies of a real enemy presenting very real temptations because he knew what God had already said. Do you know what God said to you? Do you know what he said to us? Jesus gets through these temptations unscathed, and the the enemy leaves. Jesus returned in power, in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in the synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus emerges after 40 days of time with God, and time defeating the enemy, And and the buzz has built and spread, and now he steps in, and now he begins his public ministry. And already people are excited, and already things are happening. His reputation has preceded him, and he goes and he does wonders, and then he goes into his own home church. (laughs) He goes into the Nazareth synagogue. Can you imagine this scene? Everyone's heard what's happened with John. Everyone's heard the miracles. And here's the local boy stepping foot into their, their uh, uh, Sabbath service. And they're like, mm, wow, like all, all the things you'd be like, that's Joseph's son? Like, how can that be? But he's so awesome. Anyway, look at what happens here. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a very familiar verse to us in this house because we quote it all the time. He's quoting Isaiah 61. Uh, And uh, as you can see here, this was what he was called to to bring restoration. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? It's funny, as I've thought about this, I've, I've often uh, uh, had this wrong in my mind, like, because um, they're about to get mad at him, we know. Um, I, I've always thought, like, they got mad at him for basically saying, this is all pointing to me. Uh, at, so, uh, telling them, yes, I am the Messiah, I'm, I'm fulfilling these words that were prophesied. But they're actually excited here. They like this. They're like, yeah, sweet, this is all fantastic, this is our boy, yeah. Okay? In fact, you know, I think, I think they were probably like, you know, singing the Nazareth football fight song. You know? this is like, our guy is the Messiah. How amazing is that? So, um, and he said to them, but he keeps going, okay? All oh, is not going to stay well. He keeps going, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, this is where he was previously, uh, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zephyrath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, and there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophets, uh, the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Okay. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Wait a second. They rose up. They drove him out of town. They brought him to the brow of the hill on which uh, the town was built, so that they could throw him down uh, down the cliff. They were going to kill him for this. They were. They were like, "Yay, Jesus, Jesus! Nazareth, Nazareth! Local boy is going to save the world. Local boy is going to be Spartacus. It's going to be amazing!" And uh, let's kill him. What happened? Well, here's what happened. He challenged their specialness. His examples here are very difficult for them to take because what is he saying? He's saying, hey, um, remember back in the day when the prophets were sent to you know, the prophet Elisha, all these people needed to hear the word of God. Where did he actually go? He went to a widow, one alienated from society, marginalized, and from, from Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were like the most pagan, dirty places in their minds of anywhere. And that's who Elisha was sent to. And in many, many in Israel had leprosy. Many of them. But where, who did God choose to heal? He chose to heal Naaman, the Syrian general. The Syrians were like their worst enemies. And God healed him. He didn't heal the ones in Israel. What he's telling them is simply this. You guys think, you think you have uh, some sort of corner on the way of salvation. You think you have a corner on what I am bringing you. You do not. You do not. You're wrong. Just as Israel rejected the prophets, God sent, uh, he sent them elsewhere. And just as, as, as God uh, healed Israel's enemies, he will bless All the nations, not just you. It's not about you, Israel. That's what he's saying. It's not about you, Nazareth. You might be very excited about the concept of salvation, but you don't understand it if you think this is a national issue. There's something bigger. There's something you need to understand. God came to rescue the whole world. I dare say, I think we need this message today, just like they did. Because sometimes you get, you know, when you live in a neighborhood for a really long time, and everything is either going well or terrible or whatever, but you think, man, everything must be terrible because it's hard here, and you don't know that across the street everything's great. You know that kind of thing? It's like you get sort of in your silo, and, and, and it, this is what this, is what's hap- this happens, I think, in, uh, in any kind of context, and you know what? It, it happens... On a national scale, too, sometimes, I think. Um, I want to read you a, a bit from this book. We've been doing this, this study. This book is Confronting Christianity uh, by Rebecca McLaughlin. We're doing this in our home group, and it's been amazing. I want to highly recommend this book. I think it's absolutely wonderful. Um, we read this one uh, about a week and a half ago, and uh, this passage really jumped out at me. Listen to this many of us associate Christianity with white Western imperialism. There are reasons for this, some quite ugly, regrettable reasons. But most of the world's Christians are neither white nor Western, and Christianity is getting less white Western by the day. This is partly thanks to the missionary activities from non-Westerners. For instance, despite its small population and Christian minority, only 29%, South Korea exports the largest number of missionaries, some largest numbers of missionaries of any country in the world. Isn't that cool? As Yale law professor and leading black public intellectual Stephen Carter has observed, there's a difficult endemic uh, to today's secular left an all too frequent weird refusal to acknowledge the demographics of Christianity. Carter points out that in the U.S., black women are by far the most Christian demographic. While around the globe, the people most likely to be Christians are women of color. He warns, when you mock Christians, you're not mocking who you think you are. Those of of us who grew up in the West must adjust to the fact that our culture does not own Christianity. In fact, quite the reverse. Our culture does not own Christianity. Quite the reverse. This is actually wonderful news. This is really, really good because sometimes we get in our silo and we think, "Man, things are really, really bad," and you don't realize like uh, the incredible growth of the kingdom of God around the world. It is a beautiful and powerful thing. And, and, and guess what? We in the church in the West, uh, whether we're doing really well or really badly, it's going to continue to grow regardless of what happens here. It's actually really good news because you know we've we've struggled a lot. So praise God for this. This is an amazing thing. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes I think we have the attitude that the Nazareth had. We think, like, that we're extra special somehow. You know, why, you know why I say that? We start to think that the stuff happening here in our backyard is the end all, you know. Like, for example, uh, anytime there's anything, you know, the, the, the church is in a, a, a bad place or... or um, or, you know, the culture is, is extremely critical and someone's very cruel against the church, which is absolutely true. And we think, man, persecution is coming and that means the end times are coming. And, like, it's all happening right now. And, and I want to say, you guys, why do we think when persecution happens to us, and I don't even think we're being persecuted, by the way, but when persecution would happen to us, then, then suddenly it's the end times. Because I'll tell you what's been happening in China. I can tell you what's been happening in Cuba. I can tell you what's been happening in North Korea. For decades and decades, the church has been persecuted in horrible ways around the world. And we haven't looked and go, man, there's serious persecution in North Korea. We must be in the end times. Another thing I would say is this. For as long as I can remember, every president of the United States has been the Antichrist. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist. That's the earliest one that I remember. And then George H.W. Bush, he was the Antichrist. And then Bill Clinton was also the Antichrist. And then George W. Bush, he was the Antichrist. Except that Barack Obama was the Antichrist. No, except that Donald Trump is the Antichrist. Also, Bill Gates. <laughs> Do you notice? They're all here. We all look and we're like, man, whatever's happening here, this must be ground zero. And I want to say, guys, I don't think that's true. This is not ground zero of history. This is not ground zero of Christianity. And Jesus is telling even Nazareth, you are not ground zero. Do you hear what I'm saying? What I'm saying is, I don't think we're that special. I grew up every week, I went to a Christian school, and we delved into the, the writings of our founding fathers and, and, and some of the beautiful things that took, and there were some beautiful things that took place. or some ugly things that took place too, but the, 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 the thing that, that we were always sort of like right there, and they were always saying is that, that we as U.S. Are, are like the new Israel. And I don't think that's true. I just don't. I do think that every nation has a special role to play and God looks and he loves each and every one of these nations and he has given us a role to play and sometimes we've done a good job and sometimes we've done a bad job. But even if that was, I'm not even going to try to make the point, even if that was true, even if if God says, yes, the United States of America is the new Israel, you're now God's chosen people. Even if that was true, Jesus came to the actual chosen people right here in Luke and he tells them, you are not as special as you think you are. Do you see what I'm saying? God came to save everybody, all nations. Amen. And we've got to get a, a healthy respect for that. We've got to get a healthy respect for how beautiful and diverse our faith is. And it's amazing. It's, and, and if you ever find yourself getting down, oh uh, man, it just oh oh, things are being defeated. Please read this book. And this chapter on this is fantastic, and she makes an absolutely incredible, compelling case that Christianity is the most ethnically, internationally diverse community in the history of the world. And part of that is because there's no ground zero. We don't have a Mecca that you have to go and visit. We don't have a specific language you have to, to read it in. Like all, all, this is, it's, a, it's a beautiful and phenomenal thing that he comes for all people, and there's a beautiful representation among all languages. It's, it's, it's an incredible thing the Lord has done and invited us into. Jesus came not to fulfill religious fantasies, Nazareth, you have this thing that you're really special and that we're going to all rise up and overthrow Rome. That's not why I came. Jesus had to burst their bubble. He might have had to burst some of our bubbles too. Sometimes, maybe it has nothing to do with America. Maybe it just has, has to do with your specific brand of, uh, you know, theologians you follow. Or maybe things think, like, the, the church that we're in, we had a really great time. I love our church, but we're not the end all. We're just a church and part of the big church, right? But whatever, maybe you think it's like, it's me. It's me and Jesus on a hill. That's what Christianity is. Like for me, I don't need anyone. I just need, to, and it's like, no, that's actually not true. You're not that special. You are. Do you see what I'm saying? We're all the apple of God's eye. Every one of us. Do you hear what I'm saying? Are you with me? I dare, dare, dare say, are you with me again? Are you, are you with me? God has a a high value for calling everyone in. Everyone. And throughout the book of Luke, he's going to do this. He's calling them all in. But I want to be very clear. He is coming, especially for the outcasts. Especially for those who have been forgotten. Especially to those who have been told that they're not enough. You guys... Two nights ago, I had the incredible privilege to be a part of uh, Night to Shine up in Corvallis. Anybody know what that is? Night to Shine is a thing started by Tim Tebow and the Tim Tebow Foundation several years back. And it is a it is a prom. It's happening. It happened in 700 churches around the U.S. It was a prom for people with disabilities. And it was not just high school and junior high. It was all the way up, there were people there, I swear, were in their 60s, of every kind of disability you can imagine. it would be Down syndrome, or autism, or uh, you know, people in wheelchairs, people barely, people not able to walk, I, all the, the entire thing. And uh, so I got to go. I was hoping to bring my son, but he had a fever, so he couldn't come. But I, so I went as a buddy. And so it, you, basically, you, you are like with one of the people attending, and you just get to be with them, you get to dance with them, you get to help them out in all different ways. So I was paired up with... Uh, a lady in her mid-30s, wonderful woman named Heather, and I asked her if I could tell her story, and she was cool with it, so, um, and here's how the night begins, like, you go and meet them, and uh, I met that she, she had a date who was also uh, uh, there as one of the guests, and, and the date had attendance, so the four of us ended up hanging out the whole night. Uh, I felt better because I didn't have to do too much dancing, and nobody needs to see that, so, um, <laughs> We, we, we get in a line, and, and the limousines come. We're at a church up in Corvallis. The limousines come. And so the four of us climb in this big, beautiful SUV limousine. We come, the lights are all in there, and they're playing all this music, and they're just like looking around, and, and it was so cool. And they come around, and they, they end up pulling out in, in front uh, of the church and as they step out, there's a man with a microphone and a red carpet that's lined with people with cameras and, and people there to cheer. And they, they, said, they got their names and they said, Michael and Heather and everyone erupts in cheers as they walk down the red carpet. And me and the other attendant are just walking behind them. It was beautiful and kind of overwhelming. We, we get in and the dancing begins and, and, and everybody, like, there's hundreds of people, there's 250 guests, and then a whole bunch of volunteers, probably about 1,000 people involved in the night. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever witnessed. And, and uh, uh, a little bit in, uh, they, they have a countdown clock, and, and, and then a video of Tim Tebow comes. And they all cheer when they see him. I maintain I think he's going to be known more for night to shine than football when all is said and done. I truly believe this because his face comes up there and these guys went crazy when they saw him. And he says, I am so happy to work with these people to bring night to shine to you. And I want to say, God loves each and every one of you so much. You are so special. And he says, now let's have all the attendants get the crowns and the tiaras. Because we officially want to crown each and every one of you the prom king and queen. So I took Heather's tiara and I was able to put it on her light and I thought, oh man, is this the kingdom of God? That these precious souls who are not used to being celebrated, in fact, they used to be overlooked and forgotten, and here they are being honored in ways they've never been honored before. And I thought, this is what we are about. This is what Jesus was about. Did he die for you? Oh, yes, he did. But he also died for your neighbor. And he also died for those who have forgotten. And he goes after those ones especially. And it is our joy and our honor to follow what Jesus did in seeking them out and not seeking a place of honor. We're already honored. We're sons and daughters. So we seek out to give honor to others, to give the honor of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful thing we have? Isn't that a beautiful calling?